Julie at Dogcast Radio. If you like dogs, wherever you are in the world, we're the show for you. Hello and welcome to episode 211 of Dogcast Radio. In this episode, we have all the advice you need on finding a good trainer and or behaviourist. Punishment is almost like a nuclear bomb. There was a dog trainer called Steve White who said that. If the blast doesn't get you, the fallout will. Also, what you need to know about balanced training. Something which you might not even think of being related to separation-related behaviours. Dogs who have issues or anxiety with being left alone. Yeah, they're not comfortable being left on their own. Was highest in dogs who'd had mixed method training and lowest in dogs who'd had positive-only training. Plus, the Dogcast Radio News. A dog was born in Essex, UK recently, who was almost certainly unique in that she had six legs. But before all that, we have an interview with Matthew Lamarand, who is a United States military veteran canine handler, who has developed training methods which deliberately avoid the over-reliance on equipment or treats. I'm talking today to Matthew Lamarand. Hi, Matthew. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Perfect. It's a beautiful day here in... Michigan. Uh, we got sunny weather and we've actually got a, a dry spell going on. So we've been hit with rain for the last 14 days. We finally got a little break in the rain. So it's beautiful outside. Yeah. Gosh, you could be in England with 14 days of rain like that. Crikey. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, we've actually got sunshine here as well. So the, the elements are smiling on us both. Absolutely. It's just, this is needed. This was, uh, this has been in the cards and, and the universe has given us the sign to, to go ahead with this interview. So perfect. Yes. Good. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. So let's go ahead. So Matthew, tell me a bit about yourself. Okay. That's a, uh, again, a very open question. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'll just go all the way from the beginning, but, yeah. uh, I joined the military in 2008 with the, the vision and the idea of, being a canine handler for the United States Air Force. Uh, it took me two years. I had to keep putting in applications. got denied not once, not twice, but on my third time, I finally uh, got accepted, went down to San Antonio, Texas, and went through canine school for about three months, and then got stationed in Little Rock, Arkansas, and got my first military working dog, Cato. Uh, his tattoo was November 160. I can still remember that all the way since... Uh, I guess it's nine years now. So uh, he's a big part of my life. He's uh, one of the reasons why I'm doing what I'm doing today. Um, I talk about him a lot in my book. Uh, he's literally like something I think about every single day when I wake up. Mm-hmm. Um, we deployed uh, to the Middle East twice um, and then came back and then we worked for President Obama. We scored a 99% on our evals for the state of Arkansas. So we were, what that means is that we're just a really solid dog team for, uh, detection and, uh, we didn't miss many things. Uh, and it was, if any mess ups happened, it was usually my fault because that dog was smarter than me. <laughs> I was just a glorified pooper scooper is what I like to call myself. Uh, but after uh, our last deployment, I went through a rough stretch. I uh, I do suffer from uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, and I uh, went through a breakup, and I uh, I tried to take my life, my own life, and uh, everything was just felt, I felt like the weight of the world was on my shoulders. I couldn't couldn't breathe. I felt alone. Uh, the breakup really took a toll on me. 
the deployments were taking a toll on me and I was away from my family. I was in Arkansas uh, in, a, in an empty house, um, no family around. And uh, all I had was this eight or 12 week old Rottweiler named Rocky. And uh, he saw that I was in distress and he's never been trained on service work or anything of that nature. He was just a puppy. And uh, somehow he just knew that I needed it, but he climbed in my lap he forced me to pet him and like I just felt all that weight, all that pressure, all that stress, like literally fall mm. every time I was petting him, every time I was uh, touching him, like all of it was just melting away. And uh, I dedicate my life now to dogs because I felt like a, the dog legitimately saved my life that mm. night. Mm. And uh, it's now my mission to give a voice to the voiceless, to give people, the dogs don't get to choose the owners. The owners choose the dog and, uh, the owners get to choose the trainer. And yes. so I just want to give the dogs the best opportunity to, to live the life that they deserve. And that's what I dedicate my life to. Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. And that's such a lovely way to pay Rocky back, you know, for yes. what he did for you. But I mean, I, I'm mean, on, on a much smaller scale. I can, I can understand because I mean, yeah, I'll be very honest today. Um, I would, I, I'm going to try and keep it together at the moment, but, um, I was talking about Buddy. Buddy was my black Labrador who died, uh, coming up to a year ago. And I said something that would, that triggered me. And suddenly I was in floods of tears and it's just as raw as it was, you know, nearly 12 months ago. And the dog we have at the moment, this is my daughter's dog, uh, Mischief, who's a, a tiny little, um, German Spitzkind. And she just ran over and got on my lap and was licking my face. And she's just like, it's okay. It's okay. And it does sit. And, and that buddy was very much in that line of sort of, he couldn't bear you to be unhappy. He had to come and, yeah. you know, put his head on your lap. And, and it's just, I always think the power of a dog is amazing, but that's incredible that you were on the point of giving up. And, you know, that yeah, connection with the dog. Too, yeah. Mm. yeah. So, so you're, you're on a mission to, to give back to dogs and give them good lives as well. Yeah. Uh, dogs, humans alike, because I feel like, uh, I've met doctors, lawyers, people who are in the top of their industry, uh, and they get frustrated with their dog. They love the dog. They, they love, they had one when they were a kid. And then once they got an adult, they got the same breed and they have no idea what the issue is. And, uh, they just want the dog that they used to have growing up. And, uh, so they're, they're not, they're not dummies. They're, they're super smart. They just haven't been taught or they don't know the learning theories and, and the training that goes behind it or the work, uh, that goes behind it. But so I never like down talk, um, mm -hmm. the people who have these, these dog issues. Um, but yeah, that's, yes, it's a, it's a two way street where it's a, I call it a yin and a yang. Like we're, we're in a partnership. I was in a partnership with, with Kato. I was in a partnership with Rocky and now I have a Dutch shepherd named Vodnik and he is part of, he's in the business. Um, our business logo is actually me and him, uh, side by side and we're conjoined as making one figure. Um, like that's how I feel like the relationship should be. It shouldn't be a relationship. It should be a partnership, a give and take. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. I'm 100% with you because, you know, I really strongly feel that's why we have dogs. You know, we have them because we love them. It should be, the motivation should be, you know, you have them because you love them and you want to give them the best life that you can and they're going to make your life wonderful. And yeah, you're walking together through life. That's how it should be. I love that. Um, that's, that's lovely. So your, your long experience, and we'll, we'll unpack some of that a bit later, but your long experience with dogs has led you to develop your own uh, philosophy of training, hasn't it? Uh, yeah, I, I believe so. I've, I've blended, you know, I've gone to the seminars with, you know, positive reinforcement or pure positive training. I was in the military for almost uh, eight years, and I learned that method. And then I've been doing the seminars with the working dogs uh, for for sport. And I've kind of just blended all the theories together that I think makes the most sense to me. And I feel like hasn't failed any of my clients yet. And uh, my like, again, like my, my mission is just to spread the word about it uh, so that everyone can have that same, again, partnership. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and if anybody if everybody could, could have that with their dog, wouldn't it be wonderful? So. Is there is there a piece of equipment we can go out and buy that's the magic wand? Is there a special kind of treat we can buy, Matthew? What's the secret? The secret is patience, consistency, and structure. Mm-hmm. You can't. You can. You can. It's completely free. Uh, there is. Uh, you don't have to go to the store. There. There is no big box chain that that carries it. It's inside of yourself. Uh, and where I actually learned the most of it from was I. Uh, my daughter was born. And it's in the book. Uh, I, she was crying consistently, uh, for about eight months. And eventually I was just losing my mind. Like, yeah. And I was like, you're, you're eight months old. Like all the books we're reading is telling us to do this, this and that, buy this, buy that. And, uh, I just saw a correlation with losing my patience with a, with an infant and losing my patience with a, with a puppy. Right. Mm. And so that's where the patience came from. And then the consistency is, you know, I say one thing and handle myself in a certain way, but then my wife would tell the dog uh, to do something else and she would carry herself in a different way and it didn't know how to respond. So it was just something that we observed um, from from that aspect. Uh, And then structure is just the dogs thrive in that pack environment. That goes back to Cesar Milan or anyone who believes in the alpha dog mentality. I don't believe in that, but they do if they, they're ancestors of wolves and they, they need the structure. They need that, that pack mentality. You are their, their pack. You are the leader. You're, you're the ones with thumbs and, and, and voice and, 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 and a brain mm. um, that we should be able to help lead them, be the leader that all of us can be. If it's not at work, at least we can be the leader in the home with our dog. Um, so that's those are the three things that you, you need to, to train a dog. Yeah. Yeah. That's, so, so what, when you say leader, what kind of leader should we be? Because it's a, presumably it's not about sort of saying to our dogs, you will do this because I'm telling you to do. So what kind of leader, you know, are you, are you guiding people to be? Uh, I'm, to be that open minded, uh, the one that is adaptable, the one that is, uh, not afraid to, to challenge or even myself, you know, don't be afraid to ask your trainer certain questions like, well, uh, here's a good question. Um, the dogs that are crated all day because their owners are, uh, away at work, you know, they'll brush the door, right? Uh, why are we making them sit, you know, when they have to go potty? Aren't we let, setting them up to use the bathroom in the crate, which then creates a, a, 
negative environment. Um, the, it goes back to that structure, you know, like, yeah, you, you can challenge me. Yeah. Be open-minded to my ideas, be open-minded to your own ideas, research yourself. Um, that kind of leader is really what I want people to strive to be is the one that's open-minded to try new, not new theories, new things. And, uh, yeah. 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 And I think that's, that's a great point because to me, dog, you know, we're all different and our dogs are all different. So it's about finding the, the approach that suits you and the dog, isn't it? And that's going to be different. You know, you and that particular dog, it's going to be different, you know, with whatever exactly. dog you have, isn't it? Yeah. 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 So again, uh, you have people who are soft spoken and I'm very boisterous, very, uh, <laughs> outgoing. Mm. Uh, so it's easy for my, my voice affliction to affect the dog without, anything uh other people are soft-spoken and they're like winter come you know like the dog more focused on the squirrel and rabbit she couldn't even she was so in drive that she couldn't hear you um but finding then what what can you use to grab her attention is it is it a treat is it a piece of bacon is it bologna is it uh the leash jerk something like what can you do to tailor what the dog needs and that's really what it's what it's about yeah yeah. And I know you, you don't like to over rely on treats, do you? Um, I love treats in the beginning. Mm-hmm. I really do. I love treats to teach and communicate and to shape and to, to manipulate the dog into positions and reward them for, for, for their hard work. But eventually when they're, they've shown you that they know what sit means, they know what down means, they know what heel means, they've shown it to you and they're consistent with it. Why do we always have to carry treats with us? I'm not always going to carry a treat, um, but they will respond to, again, your voice. I get all very, very high pitched. I'm like, oh, vodnik, vodnik, do, 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 do. Right. And mm. they, he loves it. I sing him songs. Like he responds to my songs that I sing to him. Um, he loves belly rubs. That's a reward for them. Yes. We got the dogs to have that relationship, that bonding. And that's the only way to bond with the dog is to touch them. Why, why? create a gap there because you're relying on the treat and you're actually not touching the dog. Does it make sense? Oh yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, I, I, I love this because I, you know, I'm still learning with, with uh, mischief now who's coming up to two. And of course the, the training advice now is very, very different from when I first got buddy back in 2003. Um, and it is different and I can see the difference in the way she responds. Um, you know, and I mean, we were always very kind to Buddy, but there wasn't quite the emphasis on the, you know, the positive. And as you said, the treat or the, the, the fuss, it was, it was a different world then. And because it's all been very, very positive with mischief and everything's been rewarded. Oh, well done. Well done. Or I'll oh, just wait and see what you do. If it wasn't the right behavior, you know, she is so happy and willing to try. And when you say to her, you know, come. And again, she doesn't always get the treat now because, you know, she knows what we're saying. So when she does it, sometimes now it's, it's a big verbal response or it's lots of fuss or a toy or something, you know, so it does vary. But because it's in her mind, that positive association has been set up. She's just like, yeah, I'll try. I'll do it. What do you want? What, you know, and it's, I can really <laughs> yeah. see that, you know? <laughs> yeah. What I, what I really, really, uh, liked about uh, working with Cato is that was his attitude towards everything. And when I was in canine school, it was very much that old 1980s, early 1990s. Uh, I don't want to call it capital punishment, but it was, you know, the 
the avoidance trading mm-hmm. uh, where it was choke chains and, and, and uh, the leash uh, popping type of type of training. And the dogs were were scared. I wouldn't call it scared, but they were more rigid. Right. Mm-hmm. And I rather have my dog want to work for me than be afraid Yes. And forced to work for me. Does that make sense? Like I want it to be a joy and that they they want to do this, not that they're forced to do it. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I I can remember, um, you know, around that. Well, uh, I'm talking early around when I had Buddy about 2003. Um, Mm -hmm. And some of the advice was sort of don't don't play with your dog when he instigates the play. It was all about control. And it was like, don't, you know, never let them win tug of war. Don't instigate, don't um, let him instigate the play. And people were finding that their dog would stop engaging with them. But when visitors came in, the dog would engage with them and and want to play with them. And you think, yeah, but you're teaching the dog that. You're teaching, I don't want to play with you. I don't want to have this, you know, as you say, open relationship, a balance. Yes, a balanced one. But you don't, you know, it's got to be that balance, hasn't it? That sometimes I'm going to say to you, you have to do this. But equally... When you are clearly saying to me, I'm not happy with this situation, I'm going to listen and say, okay, we will move away from that situation. And I, that, you know, to me, that makes sense. Yeah. It, and, and when we say it aloud, it makes sense, but people have trouble grasping, then how do they learn? And that's where the, that's where the disconnect is. It's like, well, they're learning this then. So instead of actually just testing it and trying it themselves, because it's different from what they, what they know, um, they, they, they discredit it. But yes, you're, it makes sense when we talk about it out loud. So, yes. yeah. Well, I mean, d- good <laughs> because, you know, <laughs> let's, let's hope it makes sense when people listen to it. You know, that's, you know, that's, that, that's great. But again, like, like you said earlier, it can only make sense to you. Well, or it will, it will make sense to you quicker if you hear somebody else bring it up and, you know, start that thought process in your head and you can think, gosh, yes. I mean, I, for example, years ago when we had Buddy and Star together, so before 2015, um, so I don't know, 2010-ish, I can remember I used to, when the dogs sort of were saying to me they wanted something, but I wasn't quite sure if it was to go to the toilet, to, to have dinner, what was it? And I can mm. remember I would open the back door and sort of go, what do you want to go out? And I would, and it would be a question. It wasn't like, out it was do you want to go out and sometimes they would and sometimes they wouldn't now then i would never have said to somebody then i let my dogs choose sometimes whether they go out or not and then gradually 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 you know other other braver people than me have have sort of said actually our dogs need to have some choice sometimes some power mm-hmm. of choice and then gradually you know the rest of us have gone mm, yeah actually I, I agree with you and i do give my dogs choice and that's important i think but it does it's it's sometimes it's, it, you have to be really brave to to say that and to you know to open up the discussion, don't you? Yeah, you do. Yeah, and I think you're giving people the platform to to question the traditional training methods to you know explore what they feel comfortable with. So again, we I applaud you for what you're doing here. No, well, thank you. I can only do it by talking to experts like you. So thank you, Matthew. Um, so tell me about working for President Obama. Uh, that was probably the best three months of my entire life. Uh, it was me and Cato. We, uh, there was tornadoes that hit in 2013, 2014 in Arkansas. And after those tornadoes hit, he came down and he, you know, he wanted to provide relief for the area. He gave a speech 
Uh, and I met with one of the Secret Service heads, uh, and he said that President Obama needs um, some security over in the Northeast, like Boston, Connecticut, New York area. Would I be interested in applying? And I said, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. But I definitely used uh, maybe a little bit more profanity when I found out. Uh, <laughs> and when I, you know, applied and we went for testing, uh, you know, we scored very high. Uh, we got all the markoffs that we needed from leadership. You know, it went through and we're like on the first try. I was like, no way. This is amazing. This was destined to happen. Uh, so we we flew in from Arkansas to... Goodness gracious. I want to Bristol, Connecticut, I think hmm. it was in the, uh, again, Northeast area. And I remember getting on, on off of the plane. It was just so beautiful. I've never seen the colors. Like it was fall. Uh, it was a little chilly, but you know, the trees were pretty. And then we got to stay in a four star hotel. And, uh, you know, when we deployed, we've, we've never stayed in a hotel he stayed in a crate and he, if he, if we did sleep together, like that's how he slept. But as soon as I saw the bed, it was a king size. I was like, you know what, Kato, you've earned it. I let him <laughs> jump on the bed and we, I have a picture of me and him. He's like in my, my nook, like a little girlfriend. And we like cuddled all night. And <laughs> yeah, we, I, I was petting him and he fell asleep and drew, he drooled all over my arm. Uh, <laughs> and then, you know, we woke up and we did the mission and then we just, we walked around in Connecticut, downtown Connecticut, uh, for, for hours, just looking at, uh, you know, the different sites because I've never been before. Uh, and then, yeah, that's pretty much, it. uh, President Obama came in and, uh, he came into the, the room after we swept the, the tarmac or in the flight line and all that. And he, uh, shook our hands and, uh, that was my, my opportunity to meet President Obama. So, it was a really great experience. Uh, I think it's given me, uh, you know, some credibility because of it. And it was just an amazing story. And again, I got to spend, I got to eat, sleep, shower with Cato. And it just, I think really taking that, it sounds corny, but taking that next step in our, in our partnership of actually sharing a bed and, and showing him that we're on the same level, uh, just really, I think, made things better for us in the long run. Yeah. Oh, lovely, lovely. I do think the bond, you know, the bond between us and our pet dogs is incredible enough. But when you work with a dog like that, and it's literally 24 hours a day, it must be just, as you say, taken up to the next level, isn't it? Crikey. Yeah, it's it's tiresome. Like, it is fun. Like, I try to explain it as, again, I'm just a glorified pooper scooper. I just held the leash <laughs> and he did the work. But, uh I would watch his little slight change of behavior when he would get into odor and I'd be like, I'd call it in like, Hey, we have something close by. And then he would get, he would pinpoint where uh, the odor was coming from. And uh, it was just remarkable. We're just remarkable to see him work. It was, I try to explain it to other people and they don't really, I, I just don't do it justice with my words. Um, just his tail would get stiff and then you knew he smelled something. He would throw his, his nose in the air and it cast it side to side because he was just trying to find it. And he, he did every single time. That oh. dude was amazing. Yeah. Um, it, is, it is tiresome because, you know, he had to have surgeries. It was me who had to bring him into the vet. It was me who had to stick him um, with IVs. It was me who was by his side when they put him to sleep. Uh, oh. Surgery. It was me who was there 
you know, petting him until mm-hmm. he woke up. Uh, it was, you know, it, it was like having a child, but it, you got to bring your child to work and watch your child grow. Uh, it was, yeah. it was a, remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I do agree with you absolutely that, you know, I see myself as my dog's parent, not in a silly, fluffy, you know, I'm going to dress them up and, and pretend they're my child. Not in that way, but you are yeah. in a parental role. You know, you educate them, you feed them, you, you teach them. Almost you entertain them and you have a relationship with them. And as you say, you help them grow. So to me, it it is very much a parental role. Yeah, I would have to agree with you. Uh, That's why we kind of created a a Facebook group called Possum Parents. You know, it's just for those awesome parents of dogs that are looking to, one, get education, (laughs) to find – oh, that's – Vodnik, he's talking to me right now. Oh, bless (laughs) him. He's asleep and he's having dreams. Uh, The ones that are asking questions and want the information that's available on the the group, uh, they're looking for meetups to go for group walks or, you know, that their dogs might be dog aggressive, but they want to get them closer, not to actually play, but be tolerant or indifferent to dogs. Uh, we do, you know, meetups for that as well. Uh, but just the parents that are awesome enough just to go that extra step uh, above and beyond what pe- the owners that are just see dogs as the accessory to their outfit for the day, yes. you know? Yeah, yeah. So going back to that connection with dogs that we're talking about, tell mm-hmm. me about, because you, you, you mentioned you, you wrote a book. So tell me about Dogology 101. Tell me about that. Uh, so Dogology 101 is the science behind dog training, the learning theory. Um, it I went through this canine school in August of uh, – it was in August, and it was a long time ago. We were going through the course, and there were so many, like – learning theory aspects and I was like okay I've heard you know Pavlov before in psychology like how how does this relate to to dog training I get that the dog drooled yada 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 what does this have to do with actual dog training so what was going on is I'm not I wouldn't call myself an artist by any means um, but I was making stick figures of how the theory operates and I just would take notes and draw the picture and it helped me stick and then we would take Test over it. Um, that way, you can, they knew that you knew about dog training. Um, so years later, after I got out, I had all these stories of me and Cato, of me and clients, because I never really formally started a business till recently. I just loved working with dogs, and people were like, "Hey, you know, can you train my dog?" Absolutely. So I'd, I had all these all these beautiful stories of the theory in action, and then I realized I have all these cute little pictures. Like, why not just make a book about it? And so it's, you know, the stories of people going through the theory and how it, it, it affected them and how it operates with everyday life people, as well as, you know, how it worked working with a dog in the military. And then you have the the sketches from my actual notebook uh, from canine school. So mm-hmm. that's Dogology 101. Uh, it's really resonated with people because... Uh, it, I talk about actual people. I talk about myself. I, I get pretty personal in it. And it's just, um, again, just an amazing story of how dogs communicate with us without actually communicating with us verbally. You know, yes. they're always, they're always, always communicating with just their eyes, their, their shift in their body, their tail. 
you know, a, a happy or a wagging tail doesn't always mean a, a happy tail is what I tell everyone. So it's just that they're stimulated. They're telling you like either back up off me, you're in my personal space or, Hey, let's make some love. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's just a remarkable, remarkable stories about everyday people. And I don't, I consider myself an everyday person just working with the dogs and how uh, we can use the theory in everyday life, in everyday situations. Yeah, yeah, that's lovely. Because, you know, everyday life is beautiful. That's where it all happens, isn't it? You know, everyday life is special. (laughs) Yeah, we don't get, not everyday people get dogs to compete in rally or obedience trials or or show work, you know, Schutzen or uh, do the show dogs. So how can we use the learning theory just living with our dogs? Like right now I'm having a beautiful interview and my dog's just at my feet laying down just being good he's being he's understanding the stimulus around us you know we've associated him with all the stimulus in the room and he's comfortable he's not there's no anxiety like how do you get a dog to do that Mm. how do you teach habituation you know those are the things that are important to me because we deal with it every single day yeah yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I always think, you know, I, I, I've, done, I've gone through it with Buddy and I've gone through it with Star and we've, we've managed with Mischief. You know, she's nearly two and she's she's amazing. We were saying today how much she understands. And yet, when I think of getting another dog and I think, oh, my goodness, will I be able to do it with another one? You know, and it's bewildering <laughs> again, you know? Yeah, there, it's just, it's, it is tiresome. Like, we've been talking about getting a little playmate, again, to show people from, you know, we deal with, you know, waking up in the middle of the night to go potty. You know, it is literally like having a newborn baby. And then you're, they're still dependent on you when they get to two years old. Like, um, your puppy now, mm-hmm. like she's two, but you still have to wake up with her and feed her. Like we, we wanted to sleep in today, but Vodnik's like, <laughs> no way guys, it's breakfast time right now. Let's yes. go. Let's start our day. Yeah, so. absolutely. Best alarm clock in the world. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely. It, it's been such fun talking to you. Tell me, tell me how Dogology 101, you know, how, how has it been received? What's, what's the, uh, what people that read it and oh, sort of tried so it with we, their dog? You know, yeah, we've actually, you know, uh, have, I don't know if Barnes and Noble is in the UK, uh, mm-hmm. but Barnes and Noble is wanting, uh, access to the book to, to store in, in their stores or provide it in their stores. Uh, Amazon, it was an Amazon bestselling, uh, book for, I want to say two straight weeks. Um, we were right there with Kira Sundance and, uh, Caesar Milan and we were right behind them. So it was Ooh, probably excellent. one of the most humbling experiences of my life because Kira Sundance is definitely someone I look up to and I would consider a mentor, uh, if you will. Mm-hmm. So being right next to her books, uh, was just, just remarkable for me. Uh, so yeah. It, that happened on Amazon. Uh, we're getting uh, a deal with Premier Pet Supply to to store the books and, and provide them in their stores. Uh, so it's I, my my goal is eventually become you know well enough to where it's a, a New York Times bestselling and hopefully world renowned. So that's the, that's the goal. I know it's ambitious, but and lofty. But I just I feel like the messages and the stories inside the book are beautiful. So. Uh, I, I think it could be done. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm sure you'll get there. You and you deserve to get there. Um, that's okay. Is there anything that you, you'd like to say that I haven't shut up long enough for you to say? <laughs> <laughs> no. 
You've been beautiful this entire experience. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but yeah, if you guys want any more information, my website is dogologyuniversity.com, D-O-G-O-L-G-O-Y, university.com. Uh, we, again, are on Facebook. We're the Possum Parents, P-A-W-S-O-M-E, Parents uh, Group. And uh, we have some free guides on there. You can always... Uh, ask or message us on Facebook and we can, you know, throw something together for you if you have a puppy. Uh, but yeah, just ask us for anything that you need and we'll try to provide it as, as best as we can. Excellent. Thank you. We, we were talking earlier about, you know, the fact that the majority of people want to do the right thing for their dog. They don't always know what that is, you know, and, and I would, as you say, I would class myself in there because I'd sort of go, well, I want them to have a great life, but you know, with on, on any particular issue, what's the right thing to do? But the help is out there, isn't it? But yes. it's finding it and it's finding the right help, isn't it? Finding the, the help that you resonate with, the one that hits the message that you're looking for. Uh, so if it's loose leash walking and you've already tried one method and you're like, it's not just give up, you know, you still have that dog, you still have to take it on a walk. I know it's a pain, but find that person who has a method that you are willing to try that resonates with you, that makes sense, that you can replicate in, in everyday life again. I love the fact that Matthew has gained so much from dogs and wants to give back, not just to his own dogs, but to all dogs. You can find out more about him via the links on the Dogcast Radio site. And if your dog has changed or maybe saved your life, I'd love to hear from you. When I'm training a dog, I develop a relationship with that dog. He's my buddy, and I want to make training fun. Ian Dunbar You're listening to Dogcast Radio on www.dogcastradio.com. And now it's time for the Dogcast Radio News. It's that time of year in the Northern Hemisphere where dogs should not be left in cars. Even if it's not really that hot? Yes, because the car heats up dangerously in sunlight, even if it doesn't feel too hot out of the car. But hang on. What if I'm only going to be five minutes? Let's face it, it won't just be five minutes. And why should any dog be uncomfortable for even five minutes? And if it's longer than that, it's just too dangerous to risk it. Fatal heat stroke can occur in as little as 15 minutes. But what if I leave the windows a little bit open? Nope, that won't make any difference. The car still has the potential to get fatally hot. What if I park in the shade? No, 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 no! I know. You and I have nearly come to blows with people who've left their dog in a car on a hot day. I've been playing the part of irresponsible dog owner to make a point. And that point is... Never never leave leave a dog dog in a car on a hot day. day. Not even a toy dog. A toy dog? How is that dangerous? Well, not for the toy dog, obviously, but for the car. One furious motorist posted on Facebook that they had left their daughter's toy dog in their car in Somerset, UK, when they went shopping for 20 minutes. When they returned to the car, they found the window smashed, but nothing taken, so assumed someone had been concerned about the dog, apparently asleep inside. The post was made anonymously via the Spotted Western Supermare page, and encouragingly, most of the response was in support of the window breaker. Yes, good on them. They probably thought the non-responsive dog had passed out. So, just to be clear, never never leave leave a a dog dog in a car car on a a hot hot day. day. Not even a toy one. On to a real dog now. 
Chaser, the world's smartest dog, who passed away at age 15, having learned over a thousand words. Chaser lived in South Carolina, USA, and belonged to John Pilly, a retired psychiatrist who spent three years teaching Chaser nouns by showing her an object, repeating the name up to 40 times, then hiding it and asking her to find it. Eventually, Chaser knew 1,022 words, including 800 cloth animal toys, 116 balls, and 26 frisbees. Chaser's family believed that she was not unique, but rather it was the way John taught her which differed from other methods, and allowed Chaser to demonstrate that she had a deeper understanding of the world than just the ability to learn limited commands and tricks in exchange for a treat. It sounds like Chaser's need for mental stimulation was definitely met. And wouldn't it be lovely if that was the case for all dogs? Because research actually indicates that getting that mental stimulation promotes a healthier, longer life. A dog was born in Essex, UK recently, who was almost certainly unique in that she had six legs. Luke Orpington spotted the pup for sale online, and the young Labrador cross now lives with Luke and his family. Luke himself suffers from the skin condition psoriasis, and feels empathy with his dog over her different appearance. The puppy has been christened Roo because her extra limbs cause her to hop a little like a kangaroo, rather than running. The family are now hoping that Dr Noel Fitzpatrick, the Irish veterinary surgeon who stars in Channel 4's The Super Vet, may be able to help Rue and improve her mobility. Fingers crossed for her. Goma, a five-year-old Maltese Papillon cross, has four legs, but her ears have attracted attention. Goma lives in Japan and has grown a large following on Instagram thanks to her huge ears. Her ears are not only big, they're a different colour from the rest of her body, leading to comparisons with a teddy bear or even Mickey Mouse. To check out this unusual dog yourself, visit her Instagram feed, to which we have a link on the Dogcast Radio site. Kai, a golden retriever in Alberta, Canada, had piled pounds on, leaving the poor dog in effect immobile and disabled, so his owner took him to the vet. For advice on diet and exercise? No, to euthanise him. Fortunately, rather than putting him down... The vet found him a foster placement with Pam Heggie. But such were Kai's issues. He could hardly walk up the three small steps outside Pam's home. Pam was not deterred, though, and she started taking Kai for very, very short walks, gradually building in distance. The good news is that now Kai has lost over half his body weight, which is over 100 pounds, and is enjoying life at a healthy size. Kai even had hydrotherapy to help strengthen his legs, and coupled with a healthy diet... His new regime has got him back to being able to live a normal life. Talking of normal, what do you think of the woman who married her dog? The ceremony was televised on UK mid-morning show this morning, and the bride said she had tried to find the right man and despaired, so she was marrying the one male who never let her down. She had four failed engagements behind her, but I'm not sure about the legal status of the marriage, given that the presenter, Alison Hammond, was the minister. However, this is not the first union between a human and a dog, so what do you think? Is it just a bit of fun? Or does it devalue marriage? Or even dog ownership? Or can you sympathise and you've found a love with your dog which no human partner could equal? Well, dogs are pretty amazing, and a puppy who was handed into a rescue centre as a stray in June this year is all set to become a sniffer dog. The crossbreed, who was estimated to be around nine months old, had no microchip so couldn't be taken back to her home, and no one came forward to claim her. The anonymous person's loss is Avon and Somerset Police's gain, and now christened Raven, the youngster has shown herself perfect for a working life, thanks to her obsession with finding and retrieving a ball. Raven will be sniffing out drugs, 
firearms and cash and we wish her the very best of luck and thank her and the police service for their hard work ensuring our safety. That's it for the Dogcast Radio News for now. See you next time. Reach deeper during training and find a way to connect with your dog from the heart, not a leash and collar. Zach George We all want the very best for our dogs. But how do we ensure the trainers and behaviourists we take advice from are the best? It's a minefield, and the crux of it is that the wrong advice may be very damaging for your dog. To get to the truth, I spoke to Rachel Rogers, MSC, who is the head coach of Dog Trust's Dog School Shropshire and Cheshire and the area manager of Dog School Midlands. I'm talking to Rachel Rogers today. Hi, Rachel, how are you? Hi, Julie. I'm good, thank you. How are you? Good. I'm fine, thanks. Fine. Now, you've taken time out of your day. I know you're busy rushing around helping people with their dogs and you've taken time out to talk to me today, so thank you ever so much for that. And we're going to talk about what is a really important subject. It's how do people find a good trainer or behaviourist? We know you are one. You're endorsed by Dogs Trust. You know, we know when we come to you, we're coming to someone we can trust. But if there's not a Dogs Trust near you and you're not in that lucky position or they're full or whatever it is, how do we know we can, we, we're going to a good trainer or behaviourist? Yeah, it's a, it's a really big world, the dog world, and it's a bit of a minefield, isn't it? If you're not someone in the industry, mm-hmm. to find the right trainer using the right techniques is difficult. And one of the reasons for that is we are an unregulated industry. So at present, it is not like looking up a new dentist when you move town or registering with a GP. There is no set kind of standard or qualification that anybody has to have to classify themselves as a dog trainer or behaviorist. So although most dog trainers will go into our world and doing dog training classes and helping people with all the right intentions, they don't necessarily have the knowledge or the skill set to help the dogs in the right way. So we're quite fortunate in the UK and in there's a couple of other countries as well who have the same organizations where you can look on their websites and you know you're going to a trainer who has had to go through really rigorous testing to be listed on their website. Mm-hmm. So we've got a few in this country and one of the accreditation committees that I've gone through is the APBC, so the Association of Pet Dog trainers and the APBC, the behavior counselors. So they're a really good starting point. So the APDT, the Association of Pet Dog Trainers, we're working closely with them at Dogs Trust and a lot of our staff for the dog school classes are an APDT dog trainer. And with those, it's a really quite a lengthy process of having to do a written test. Then you go and you do a practical test. And you're observed by two examiners who have really strict criteria. And then there's an oral exam as well. So if you're going to a trainer who's listed on the APDT website, you know that they've been thoroughly checked before they've been put on there. Yeah, yeah. They're really good starting point to look at people on there. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so important because, you know, I've seen you work with a dog and, you know, it's, to me, I'm thinking, gosh, I, I wouldn't. Have, obviously, I wouldn't have a clue what to do here. And I've seen you work with them, and you get wonderful results. And it's like magic is going on. And I've seen this, you know, with with a, a trainer or behaviourist that knows what they're doing. It is like there's magic 
being done before your eyes. And it works, doesn't it? When you get it right, it works. It does. And I think one of the things that a pet dog owner should really try and do is exactly what you did, is go and see that trainer work. So always, before you kind of book and agree to letting them work with your dog, see if you can go and watch their training class. Without your dog, don't take your dog with you. And then there's a few things that you can look out for as well. So when you're there, how do you feel? If the environment is making you feel happy, then you're going to be more comfortable taking your dog there. If the customers who are already in that class with their dogs look relaxed and happy, that is a good sign. That's a really good sign. Mm. I always look out for, because I go to training with my dogs, I look out for the kind of equipment they're using. Are they using equipment that I would want on my dog? So are there signs of things that would get tight on a dog? And are they being kind of corrected and choked on like a choke collar or a prong collar? To me, they're completely unnecessary. I wouldn't want to see that in a class. Mm. I wouldn't want to see that at all. And also, it may sound daft, but noise. If there's loads and loads of barking, it could be that dogs are very excited, but it could also be that the environment is a bit stressful for those dogs. Mm. So I think if the environment is quite calm and the dogs seem relaxed and the owners or handlers seem relaxed, that would make me think, you know what, I actually do feel comfortable bringing my dog back here. Yes. And also how the the you know the instructor the dog trainer is with you. If they're welcoming you in to observe their class, you would think they have nothing to hide if they're willing to let you watch that. Yes. And yeah. are they friendly and caring and have they got the best interests of each of the dogs and owners at heart? That's key. Definitely mm. key. Yes. I mean for me I am also keen on size. So are there loads and loads of dogs and owners in there? That potentially isn't the best it might be a bit overwhelming for the dogs Mm. but also for me I'm going to want want one-to-one attention with my dog I'm going to want my own questions about Rico or Maisie to be answered Mm. so I'd be looking for the size of the venue and the number of people the number of assistants or dog trainers who are there can the instructor actually keep an eye on all of those dogs and make sure that everybody is in a space and everybody is safe that would be key for me as well yeah yeah. And while it's quite useful to sort of have to wait, you know, your turn to do the exercise in, to some extent, you know, and you, you, it gives your dog you know, or helps them hopefully develop patience and, and you can learn to work them and distract them. And then it, but you can build that bond and use that time. So that can be quite useful, but you don't really want to sit there while 10 other people do the exercise and you have to wait. Yeah, that's unwieldy, really, for a class. It's also not setting the dog up for the best expectations either, are they? Because mm. if we're taking maybe a young puppy, it's maybe you're a first-time dog owner and you're taking your first puppy to a class, if your puppy's in a room with, I don't know, 10 other dogs and they've just, we're expecting them to just sit and wait and do nothing for 5, 10, 15 minutes until it's their turn, that's not realistic. Mm. That's going to, you know, the dogs are going to get bored. They're going to want to be doing things. They're in this exciting environment with all these new people, all these new smells. Of course, they're going to want to interact with other dogs and be up and doing things. So I think small numbers of dogs and handlers or a good number of dog trainer to customer ratio so that you do get that time. But also, is it somebody who can stand at the front and deliver to the number of people who are in there so that everybody is doing the activities at the same time. Mm. So your dog isn't waiting. They're getting that opportunity to be doing stuff all the time. For me, it's a good way to have it kind of set up and run so that everybody achieves what they want to be achieving. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's actually, 
a really important thing to realize is that training classes are just that. They are for training. So if someone is looking for help with a, an established behavioral problem with a dog, so a dog who's maybe aggressive towards dogs or aggressive towards people or nervous and fearful, a group training class is not the right environment to be solving a behavioral problem. Some trainers would offer maybe one-to-one sessions for dogs who can't take part in ordinary pet dog training classes, but behavior is different to basic training, and there's different skills and knowledge involved in someone who's classed as a behaviorist to a dog trainer, just to make it even more difficult for pet dog owners. (laughs) But I think if you know that it's an underlying kind of a problem you've already got with your dog, that is behavioral, so aggression, fear, that kind of thing, Mm. we need to be looking for support from a behaviorist rather than a trainer. Because if we take a scared dog into a class with multiple other dogs, multiple other people, that's not going to be an environment to help you with that problem. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that again, like you say, that's, that's a minefield, isn't it? Where, when do you need to step up and go, well, actually, I need to go beyond a trainer now. I need to find a behaviorist because, you know, we've, we've really got a problem. And again, as humans, we're bad at this because we go, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. It'll work itself out. I don't want to pay the money for a behavior. I'm, I'm just going to wait and it'll go away. And it doesn't, does it? And I think that's why it's key to getting the right trainer in the first place. The ones who are in it to genuinely help those dogs. So certainly the people I work with who are other APDT dog trainers, the Association of Pet Dog Trainers, one of the things that we all talk about when we're doing our assessments is referring on to another appropriate professional if it is not suitable for that dog to be in your class. So as much as obviously all dog trainers need to make a living and we need to, you know, survive and get money to feed our own dogs, you need to know the extent of your ability. And if what you are offering is a basic puppy class for six puppies to learn to walk nicely on the lead and to do some socialization where they get to meet other puppies and experience different, I know, ball pits and tunnels, then those trainers who are APDT accredited, if a dog came to their class and already had an established behavioral problem, they would be having that discussion with the owner and saying, have you know have a refund take your money and go to this person because they can help you with that problem yeah having you in my class isn't going to help yeah but you see this is i always think it's vital for every dog and i think every dog and human like every new partnership it doesn't matter if you've trained you know half a dozen dogs in the past we all need to go to classes together with a new each new dog because that dog needs to see the trainer the trainer needs to see them and if there are any problems the earlier you pick it up the better and you know i think dogs would be happier owners would be happier and i really feel quite passionately that we should all you know it should be um mandatory it should be a a legal requirement of having a dog you need to go and get some training so that if there are problems they're picked up and you learn to do things the right way yeah and i think that's interesting because There's been some research done, you know, a few years ago now, I think it was 2008, Hmm. where they gave a questionnaire to dog owners and they were looking at kind of what type of training did they go to? Did they go to a dog trainer? Did they attend like a local puppy class, puppy socialization class? And only 40% of the owners who did that survey, and I think there was a couple of hundred people involved in it, only 40% actually went to dog training classes. (sighs) 
most owners just did dog training in the home. Yeah, yeah. And that, you know, if they, a lot of people will have the skills mm. because a lot of what we do is really basic. Yes. Really yeah. basic, you know, reward the good and ignore the bad. If you don't, you know, getting them into a sit by luring the treat in the right way, just using the mechanics of the dog and rewarding them with a nice tasty bit of food we can do that at home and a lot of people can just do that in their home but when you're out and about on a dog walk you're not in that really easy environment at the home with really few distractions in an area the dog knows well and is relaxed and comfortable yeah when you're in a training class there are so many other distractions other people other dogs sounds smells and your dog is going to come across those in the real world. So getting them used to it and going to training classes is really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And it may be, you know, that you have a dog who is very, very clever, who obeys you, you know, understands you have a good relationship with the dog. You know how to communicate. The dog is understanding and communicate, communicating back. But if they're not happy around other dogs, then you still have a problem. And that that's one that, that again, may well need a behaviourist, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And interestingly, the, the same the same research did find that dogs who went to puppy socialization classes were less likely to have issues with other dogs outside of the home. Mm. So those owners may have been perfectly skilled to train their dogs at home on their own without a trainer, but the sheer presence of having attended those socialization classes and seeing different sizes, shapes, breeds of dogs when they were younger has potentially helped them to you know cope with seeing dogs out and about on a walk and not reacting to them yeah yeah so it's it's really in your interests to to go to a class isn't it and to be honest as well I was as you were talking I was thinking it can be really fun first of all in the in the early days you know you all sort of go oh does your puppy do this does your puppy do that and you you understand you know you begin to see that it's just a a general puppy thing you're you're you haven't you know chosen a a naughty puppy and you get a lot of support <laughs> and it's a lot of fun isn't it the right class can be real fun for you and the dog yeah definitely and I think one of the things that is my favorite part of my job is in our fifth week we have almost like a dog graduation session and we have dog schools got talent so we teach the owners the skills of using positive reinforcement throughout the course and then for week five, they have to prepare a trick that we haven't taught them. And, and it never ceases to amaze me, the things that people come up with. We had a dog recently who was ringing bells. So there was a little kind of like a kid's musical instrument. Yeah. And they'd go and they could put that, you know, 300, 400 meters away from the dog and say ring. And she would run over <laughs> and jingle it with her nose. We had not taught them that. No. It doesn't really serve a purpose for them. They don't use it for kind of getting her to go out in the garden to do a wee. It was just a fun little thing yeah. that they've taught her and everybody was cheering and was so proud of her because she was a really nervous shy little dog in the first week and she Aww. came on so well yeah. to be running around the hall ringing these bells in front of everyone it was really lovely to Aww. see yeah but you know when you have a trick when your dog has a trick that you know is their party piece it's great and buddies was always he we could put you know mime shooting him and go bang and he'd lie down oh yeah yeah on his side dead and he he won a few um fun dog competition you know best trick with that and mischief has a lovely one which is actually a behavior she did which her her mum did and she she's picked up from her mum obviously where she sort of sits up and waves both hands together in almost like in a please 
motion. Oh. And so we, we put, we said tippy toes for that and, and, and rewarded her. And so she'll do that. And you can say when, yeah, when strangers come up and say, Oh, she's lovely. Can I say hello? And you, yes, they can fuss her. But we can also say, hold this treat and just say, do, do this, you know, hand signal and, and say tippy toes. And she does it and they're delighted, you know? And it's, it's so pleasurable for the owner that your dog has this trick that other people want to do with it. It's brilliant. Yeah, it's lovely as well. When you come across maybe kids who don't have a dog at home and they're not used to being around dogs, if they can then ask your dog just something really basic like a sit, yes. they can then go away with this lovely positive experience that they've had with the dog, which is really nice. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's really great. And I can I can really recommend going to a class because it's great. You get support from the other members of the class and you get a lot of help from, you know, the trainer or behaviourist in charge because... Little things like I can remember when I, when I was doing some heel work to music with Buddy, and it, I, I was I was really we were struggling. I spent I spent a fortnight with him, trying to get any any manoeuvre out of him, and I and I was failing. And then the um, the trainer said to me, "Well, look, have you used the clicker? Now we used the clicker when he was a puppy, and then I put it down, and." And I said, oh, no, I haven't used the click. Well, within, you know, 24 hours, it was a different situation. And But I wouldn't have thought of that. And sometimes just that little bit of distance and obviously experience. And it just opens, you know, turns the, the key for you and you're through the door. And, and it's a different situation completely, isn't it? Yeah. And even the most experienced dog trainers sometimes just need to sit in a pub with another dog trainer <laughs> and yes. discuss a problem that they're having. And you can come up with a hundred different ways that you maybe haven't thought of trying or for whatever reason you just had forgotten about. Yes. And you can come up with another way of doing it, which will work for that individual dog. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, in, in the interest of fairness, Rachel, I should point out, it doesn't have to be the pub, you know. <laughs> <laughs> or a coffee shop. Could yeah. be. Could No, I just, you know, I think we ought to say that. But yes, the pub's obviously conducive to, to business, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> if, People, we, we've said to you some good points to look for and what we what we should be expecting. What should be ringing alarm bells? You know, if you go to a class and you go and observe, or perhaps you've even turned up with your dog. Because I've met people and they've they've talked the talk, and you think, yeah, we'll we'll go along. And then you go and actually observe one, and you think, oh, you're not getting your hands on my dog. Um, and it's, you know, to, when you actually see them in action, it's a different setup. So, what should be ringing alarm bells? I think the equipment that's being used, I think if somebody's happened to use equipment that in any way restricts a dog's movement, so if they've kind of got something, an anti-pull harness, one that tightens on the dog mm. to stop it from pulling, that would concern me, or, a, you know, the choke chains and the prong collars. The type of equipment would definitely be a red flag for me, because yeah. why are we needing to use that? That makes me automatically think potentially we're not using the right methods if we're mm -hmm. relying on equipment like that. If there's a lot of force being used, yes. so if dogs are being corrected, if the lead is being yanked or the dogs are being pushed and poked in any way to be making them do something, mm -hmm. we don't need to do that for a dog. So if I saw somebody, for example, getting a dog to sit down, most people now are aware we can use a treat and yes. put it on the end of their nose and lift it up and back, almost like you're drawing a mohawk above the dog's head. Mm. Their head's going to follow that. Their bottom will instinctively go down because there's only a certain amount their head can go back before that will happen. But if I was to see somebody kind of forcing a dog's bottom, so using their hand and pressing on a dog's bum to get it to sit down, that again would a lot, ring alarm bells for me because 
we don't need to be doing yeah, that. Yeah, and it's actually you, you know put, putting their hips perhaps at risk because I've had this conversation a couple of times where one with was with someone that was um, handling. Uh, but he's sort of whole, waiting with him to release him to me. And another was just a woman we met in the shops. And both of them went to push his hips down. I went, D- don't, don't push his hips. Because obviously I wanted him to be as healthy as long as possible. And, and his hips were good, but I don't didn't need the weight of a human on them. And they look at you in such surprise, like, oh, has he got bad hips? And I was like, no, he hasn't yet, but he will. He may have if you start shoving him down. He understands. Exactly. Because yeah, if a dog is refusing to do something, particularly something we know it already has yes. you know, prior learning history of. So my dogs can both sit when I point my finger at them or when I say the word sit, they will sit down. Mm. If they don't, then that is making me, my immediate reaction is why. Yes. It's not to force them into doing it. It is what is wrong with them to make them not want to sit down. Mm. And it actually is an example with my dog, Rico. He unfortunately had like an abscess on mm. his anal glands. Yeah. So he was very uncomfortable around his back end. He didn't oh. want to sit down. Yeah. So for me, that was a kind of, okay, you were sitting down quite happily a couple of days yes. ago, but now you don't want to sit. I'm not going to force you to sit. I'm going to wonder why. Yes. And because this went on for a couple of days, it wasn't that, oh, I just didn't have a nice tasty piece of sausage. Wasn't yes. the reason he wasn't <laughs> going to sit. And when we went to the vets, we found out why. So I think, yeah, there's no need to do that. Like you say, you can cause damage to them mm. and there's going to be a reason they're refusing to do that behavior. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, you know, the more and more that I write about dogs and talk about dogs and talk to you know experts like you and explore things and get more advice, more and more it becomes clear that when we stop and think about things often we can see the problem certainly if we talk to somebody like you we we can find the problem we can solve it it's when we're just trying to rush through life and you know the children are there or i'm watching the television program or i'm late home or whatever it is and the dog's doing something and i don't really want to address it i just want you know life to i want the off switch on the dog and i want life to carry on and and then i can talk to the dog later that's when we get into these bad habits and these quick quick fixes rather than thinking about it if you stop and think about it you know like you say the behavior is different what is it is it just it's a wet day and the floor is wet ah bishan didn't ever want to put her bottom on a wet floor okay fine i understand that you know is there something in the environment frightening them but what is it or as you say is it something that needs addressing medically but there's reasons stop and think don't just i know it's a pain sometimes but stop and think why Why? what's happening yeah and a lot of the time i think we need to question as ourselves why do we want them to do that because a lot of the time we for some reason as as humans we've decided that dogs should sit Mm -hmm. they should sit before they cross the road they should sit before they get their dinner what, why? It really doesn't actually serve a purpose. They don't need to do that. Mm. So if they don't need to do it, we don't need to force them to do it. You know, yeah, I understand sometimes people want the dog to be polite. But if you think of like a greyhound, it's not a natural, no. easy position for them to get into a sit very comfortably. A lot of them aren't going to want to do that. Is there any harm in them just standing nicely mm. beside the road before they cross the road? Yeah. No. No. It's absolutely. fine. So they can, you know, that can be a sensible, safe alternative for that dog is mm. to just stand rather than to sit. Yeah. So I think we have to look sometimes at why we're wanting our dogs to do something and do they really need to do it? If they don't, then we need to not worry about it so much yeah. and focus on the kids who are off for the summer holiday or whatever <laughs> else it is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And actually saying that, Buddy always used to sit for his dinner and, and, and now Missy does. But actually, when we were trying some um, ring craft with him, 
and he needed to learn to stand. Um, and that was quite difficult because every time that anybody touched him, he just wanted to be on his back. But anyway, <laughs> we, we happened to try to teach him to stand. And it was really useful to, to use the dinner to persuade him. So as long as he was standing, the dinner went on the floor quickly, you know, and obviously with the command, but the dinner went on the floor quickly. And that was such a reward for him that that was a really good. So if you're trying to sometimes get a, a behavior out of the dog that's not coming too easily, you know, dinner time can be a great time to, to teach it. I found would, would you agree with that? Or am I being too cruel there and say, I'm going to withhold? Well, no, because to that's the biggest, you know, for, for some dogs, that's going to be the yes. biggest reward, isn't it? That's yes. almost, you know, I use just my dog's biscuits from their dinner to, mm. to do a lot of their training because they love them so much. They'll, they'll pretty much do anything for any food. I think yes. that's the nature of having a pug cross. Um, <laughs> but you know, for her, if I gave her a bowl of food just for doing one stand or one sit, that's like me winning the lottery. Yes. That's a huge <laughs> reward for quite a small amount of effort, isn't yes. it? Yeah. So, yeah, you're, instead of having to maybe do 12, 15 goes of one tiny little biscuit each time, instead you can reward with a massive, the thing that they found most motivating, a huge bowl of food, that's going to work. Yes, yeah. Well, it certainly helped him. And, it, you know, it, it, it did feel a bit mean, sort of making him wait a little bit extra till he stood. But it did it really actually cut the the overall tra- tra- training time down. So I, I thought it was OK. So <laughs> we did that. Um, but there you go. And talking about that, um, talking about sort of what, it, what it's OK to do and what it's not OK, there's a term which I keep hearing and there's new movement in training and I'd really, really like to talk to you about it. So I keep hearing a balanced trainer So, and balanced training. Now, what is this, Rachel? And, and is it is it something, you know, when, when if I see in the online or in, in the paper and say, oh, they're a balanced trainer, is that someone I want to go to? Or, you know, wh- where are we standing on this? So what is balanced training? So I think... It's not really a new thing. Mm-hmm. It's a new name. Yeah. So a balanced trainer to me is still just a mixed methods trainer. So a trainer who's using maybe the more old school style dog training that was around before the more recent research into animal welfare that mm-hmm. has prompted a change into the type of training like I do, which you might hear as positive reward based or reward only or positive only training Mm -hmm. which is all about rewarding the dog for the good choices that they make so this balance training I think it's a term which is quite misleading because Mm -hmm. when we think of balance training and I don't know whether this is just a UK term but I think of things like balanced diet someone in like the health and fitness industry tells you you can have a balanced diet Mm. seems like a good thing Yes. Like, yeah. if I eat my vegetables, I can also have my chocolate bar. Yep, sounds like good. that kind of balance <laughs> yes. training. Reasonable, it seems yes. like a, quite a good payoff. Mm. And I think that giving it this name, this almost like a new branding, could quite easily make people think of it as being a nice term, mm. a kind of acceptable form of dog training. Mm. And I, you know, Victoria Stillwell, yeah. the dog trainer, I heard her once refer to it as there's nothing balanced about dog tra- about the yeah. balanced trainer, mm. nothing balanced about it. Yeah. And I think she's kind of hit the nail on the head there. So where they're different to a dog trainer like myself or any of the other dog school or APDT trainers is they use different methods from the quadrants of learning theory. So mm-hmm. to go right back to kind of what that means, mm-hmm. there's, there's 
all sorts of different ways that people learn. And for someone like myself who studied psychology before I became a dog trainer, so I did human psychology, it's the same whether it's for humans, whether it's for dolphins, dogs, iguanas, whatever you're training, you can use these principles. So we've got the four quadrants of learning theory. And they are not the best named because we refer to them as positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, positive punishment and negative punishment. And as soon as us as a human hear the word positive, we go, oh, that sounds nice. Mm -hmm. Whereas the positive side of things in dog training doesn't mean anything nice at all. It simply means addition. So we want to think of it as a plus symbol Mm -hmm. and negative as a minus symbol. So all we're doing in that kind of training, for positive training, we're adding something which is going to make the behavior happen again. Positive punishment is where we add something that's going to stop the dog doing that behavior again. Mm. So common things that might be used might be like a harsh vocal, so shouting at a dog if they've done something wrong. That's going to potentially scare them, mm-hmm. maybe hitting a dog. Mm. Or the term that you might hear a lot brandished around is corrections. Yes. So when a dog makes a mistake, they will correct a dog. Mm-hmm. So maybe a pull on the lead. So the addition of the pull on the lead to stop the dog from pulling when they're walking and to walk nicely beside you. Mm-hmm. So they will, a balanced trainer will use more variety in their training methods in a sense of they will stray into other quadrants of this type of training than a trainer like myself would be comfortable doing. Mm. And a lot of it comes down to ethics. Mm. So for me, I think if a trainer needs to use anything aversive, so anything that involves pain or punishment for a dog I don't think that's necessary. I'm not comfortable doing that. I don't Mm -hmm. think there's any need to do that. But they brandish it as being kind of a quicker fix Mm -hmm. um, that it will kind of, they can resolve issues with dogs that a positive only trainer couldn't do. Mm. And I think they are gathering momentum. It certainly seems that way in the media. Because if you look at maybe a TV program that looks at, a dog with a problem and you bring a trainer in positive training can be quite slow we might have Mm. to do lots of repetitions of the same exercise Mm -hmm. to change that dog's emotional state to make it happy in a situation and then teach it something new that doesn't make good telly no a quick fix where a trainer can come in and look like they fixed this dog within 10 minutes of meeting it that's going to appeal to the public Mm. that's going to make good tv however what we really need people to be aware of is punishment is almost like a nuclear bomb Mm. there was a dog trainer called steve white who said that if the blast doesn't get you the fallout will Mm. so there may seem to be a quick fix but actually over time, what we could have potentially done to that dog will be more damaging. Yes. Yeah. I was say that you, okay, you, you may be able to get results with balanced training, but what's going on in the dog's head? What's happened to your relationship with the dog? Exactly. You know, I've, I was saying to you earlier that we have been, I mean, we were very positive with Buddy and Star, but with, with Mischief, we're even more positive. I mean, and, and all I'm talking about there is, you know, things like we would have a pocket of treats and we'd anything she did, not that we were training, it's just an ordinary day we're going around and you see her doing something good. It may be just lying on her bed 
we like it. She's settled down and you, you throw her a treat, you know, and, and so it's been a lot more positive in that way. We've added more rewards than we perhaps did. We, we weren't as, as aware of all the time you're training them, really. And I've really seen the results with Mischief. I've seen it myself. She's so willing to try and she's ready to try. And we're not having to give her a treat every single time now that she's doing behaviours. Sometimes she does, sometimes she doesn't. And I kind of began to think about it as... When you buy a lottery ticket, you know that you're probably, you're making the effort and you're not going to get something back. You, you occasionally win. You win occasionally enough that you keep going and buying, you know, and there's always that chance somebody's going to win that million pounds. It might be me, but, so I keep buying. But if I buy the lottery ticket and I don't win, but furthermore, somebody comes around to my house and steals, you know, takes away the television as a punishment because I didn't win or the sofa or the cooker or something. Then the next time I go to buy that ticket, I might think, hang on, last time I tried this, something bad happened. I'm not going to try it this time. And, you know, it's, 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 that's what we're doing to our dogs when we punish them in that way. We're making them think, oh, I'm not going to try. I'm not happy with this. I'm not. And we're really putting them under stress at that point, aren't we? Yeah. And I think what's interesting is that conflict almost of sometimes something good happens, but then sometimes mm. something averted, something horrible happens. Yes, yeah. And it's, because it's not necessarily put in, it's not clear to the dog what is causing either of those outcomes, then you get this almost level of anxiety mm-hmm. of kind of conflict of, I don't know whether something good will happen. I don't know whether something bad will happen. So like you say, they might just not bother. They mm-hmm. might shut down and not bother. Yeah. Um, or you can get dogs who start to have more signs of anxiety, more signs of stress. Mm-hmm. Um and that's not something as a pet dog owner, I think you would you would ever want your no. dog to kind of, you know, to be showing those signs. No. And it's one of the things that I, because I'm working towards doing behavior as well as training. Mm. And when I've been shadowing cases with qualified behaviorists, one of the things that I found really interesting is looking at the research of how does using a method Mm. like a prong collar or like one of these aversive punishment methods how does that impact dogs Mm. and seeing the kind of the links between the punishment based training the balance training these mixed method training and the the outcomes that the dog has the impact it has on the dog's behavior is is really sad in that these dogs using these mixed method training, so sometimes getting a treat, sometimes getting something unpleasant happening, mm-hmm. are more likely to show behavioural problems mm-hmm. or kind of, I don't know how else to put it really, the issues that we might look to rehome a dog for. Yeah. So the yeah. reasons that our dogs would be relinquished are linked more highly with this mixed method training. Mm-hmm. So even something something which you might not even think of being related to separation related behaviors dogs who have issues or anxiety with being left alone Mm. yeah they're not comfortable being left on their own was highest in dogs who'd had mixed method training and lowest in dogs who'd had positive only training Mm. so it really is impacting the welfare of these dogs so and i think that's where 
dog training for a long time, I think, was passed down almost through family. Like, you get your first yes. dog, you ask your parents yeah, or your, your yeah. grandparents or aunties and uncles, how do you train a dog? I've not had a dog before, and they would tell you. Mm. So these these older school methods, the old style of dog training, was passed down mm-hmm. through families for oh, generations. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's only in the last kind of 20 to 30 years mm-hmm. that we've had a lot more research and a lot more interest has kind of taken place in animal welfare. Yes. And it's only recently that we have started to understand the negative impact that these kind of methods can have on our dog's welfare. Mm. Mm. And that's why I think nobody should be ashamed or embarrassed if, you know, they used to train a dog in old school ways or they went to a dog trainer who used those ways because the knowledge wasn't there. People didn't know. Mm. And that's why it's important that we can try and educate people to make the right choices now. Now that we know it does impact on the dogs, we don't need to intimidate or frighten them and inflict pain on them to train them mm. when we can just start to understand more about the way they think in order to change their behaviour. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That is heartbreaking, Rachel, that people, if you choose the balance training, you are doing something to the dog that's not you know, the best for their mental health, but also may be more likely to result in them being, you know, and you relinquishing them, rehoming them. That's just heartbreaking, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I, it's it's really sad because those owners will no doubt have gone to a dog trainer mm. with the dog's best interest in mind thinking, I'm going to train my dog so yeah. it's really compatible in my lifestyle. But if we go to the wrong trainer and we're giving the dog these conflicting messages, mm. we can actually do more damage than good. Yeah. Yeah. I almost think of the the different types of dog training, the different methods we can use. Positive reinforcement training, so giving the dog a treat or playing with their toy or using your voice to praise them, giving them a little stroke. If we use that as our training method, if we get that wrong, if I do, if my timing's wrong, mm. and I don't know, I'm training Maisie to give paw, but I give her the treat when she's actually put the foot back on the floor yeah, rather yeah. than when it's in the air, the worst thing that's happened is she gets the treat. Yes. Yeah. If I was doing that by yanking her paw, or if she didn't do it, I shouted at her or bopped her on the nose with a mm. rolled up newspaper, mm. that is much more damaging for her because it could scare it, it could physically injure her, but also it's going to damage the bond that she yeah. has with me. Yeah. Which, again, we know if a dog and owner as a pairing don't have a good bond, that can be a reason that dogs get given up or worse, put to sleep. Yeah. So we don't need to do that. We don't want to do that. If we do positive reinforcement training, we get it wrong. The dog gets a couple of extra treats yes. or gets played with or gets a stroke. It's mm. not going to have lasting damages. No. This conflicting balance training clearly can cause them problems in terms of anxiety. We don't we don't want that. Mm. But obviously there's the physical injuries that could happen to them yes. as well. Yeah. My goodness. Do you know, it does strike me that in many ways, the, the world in general, but, you know, dog training, I'm I'm hearing things now that I thought we'd left behind in the 70s. And we're going back to things that I haven't heard since then. And suddenly, as I say, in dog training and in the wider world, these things that I thought we'd left behind and we'd moved on, 
we're going back and we're hearing them again. And it's extremely worrying. And, and thank goodness for people like you who can tell us the right thing. Um, you know, and, and, and that's really great. Back it up with the science behind it. Not just you should be doing this, but why should you be doing it? Because it's better for the dog. That's brilliant. Thank you ever so much, Rachel. That's been so informative. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Um, where can people find out more about you and about um, Dogs Trust? So everything about the Dogs Trust training classes is on our website, which is dogstrustdogschool.org.uk. And they run across the country. So we've got over 30 dog schools now. We've just opened a new one up in Newcastle-Fontaine. Mm-hmm. So we've got dog schools all across there. But for anybody who isn't where there's a dog school local to them, then they should go onto the APDT website, which is the Association of Pet Dog Trainers. And they've got a really handy tool as well where it says find a trainer local to you and you can find all the accredited trainers and it has all their contact details on their register there. Great. Great. That, that's been brilliant. Um, is there anything else that you, you know, you sort of wanted to say on any of these issues, Rachel? Whoever you ask thinks they're an expert in dog training. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's fascinating. If you go to, say, your local park and just ask everyone with a dog, where would, you know, where would you recommend people go to for advice? They don't say the APDT. They don't say Dogs Trust. They say the internet, Facebook, my auntie, my uncle, whoever. <laughs> yes, yeah. You know, and that's what we need to get out there is where they can actually go and find the appropriate trainers. That, that's brilliant, Rachel. Thanks ever so much. And what about if we do need that sort of to step up to a behaviourist? Where should we be looking then? Yeah, so if we've kind of spoken to a trainer and they've advised that it is behaviour-based, it's really important to realise that a lot of our vets are fantastic but they are there for animal health so not all vets have a background in behavior so animal behavior some vets do and you're really lucky if you've got a vet who's also a qualified animal behaviorist Mm -hmm. but one of the organizations a bit like you've got the APDT for dog trainers we've also got the APBC so the APBC are the association of pet behavior counselors and they are an organization who will credit people who work with behavior problems. So for cats, dogs, horses, kind of any companion animal that needs a qualified professional person to come and help them. So they provide a network of behavior counselors who have not only got years and years of practice, but they've got the highest proven academic and practical standards in animal behavior therapy. Excellent. And one of the things, just like with the APDT, is that they have to follow a really strict code of conduct and be shown to continuously be developing their knowledge. So as we've mentioned several times in the podcast, dog training is evolving. We're finding out more and more about animal welfare and how our, you know, our behavior as dog trainers and owners impacts on their welfare. As that progresses and we find out more, the people who are a pet behaviour counsellor, an accredited one, they will have to factor that into the way that they work and make any relevant changes. So in light of any new research, they will be doing the most up-to-date ethical methods of working with your animal. So anybody looking for a clinical animal behaviourist, so they might see that as a CAB, a C-A-B, a clinical animal behaviourist, they should pop onto the APBC website the Association of Pet Behaviour Counsellors. 
that's smashing. We'll have all these links because it's a lot of letters and, and names and things to remember. But we'll I know have, the animal yes. training world is filled with acronyms. <laughs> yes, isn't it? We'll have all those links on on the Dogcast website. And I imagine they're on the dog. Are they on the Dogs Trust um, website? Isn't it? Yeah, they are. So a lot of us um, kind of charities are part of the ABTC, so the Animal Behaviour Training Council. Mm-hmm. We all work very closely together. So you'll see all of the different, you know, the Dogs Trust, RSPCA, PDF. SA logos on there um, and now have the links to either the pet behavior counselors or the pet dog trainers so you can follow them through and find your nearest one. We have all the links Rachel mentioned on the Dogcast Radio site. I don't have similar national links for any other countries so if you know of that information please let me know and I'll share it. The key thing is that reward-based training works and is kindest to the dog and if you don't feel comfortable with a trainer or behaviorist find another one. Thanks to Rachel for a great interview with lots of sense and lots of science, just what we need. If, like me, you're now all fired up to go and try some training with your dog, let's both get going. Until next time, look after yourselves and your dogs. Thanks for listening to Dogcast Radio, available from www.dogcastradio.com. That's D-O-G-C-A-S-T radio.com if you'd like to get in touch with us and wherever you are in the world we'd love to hear from you you can do so in a variety of ways you can contact us on skype with the ident dog cast radio that's all one word dog cast radio by email you can contact me on julie at dog When contacting us by email, if you have the facilities, please record your questions or comments and send them to us as an audio file. That way we can include them directly in our programme. We can accept most formats, for example, WAV, MP3. All these methods of contacting us can be found on our website, which is www.dogcastradio.com. And as ever, the final word goes to Jenny. What do you call someone who doesn't like dogs? Repugnant.